Lots of channels, nothing to watch, especially if you're searching for the truth. It's time to interrupt your regularly scheduled programs with something actually worth watching. Salem News Channel, straightforward, unfiltered, with in-depth insight and analysis from the greatest collection of conservative minds like Hugh Hewitt, Mike Gallagher, Sebastian Gorka, and more. Find truth. Watch 24-7 on SNC.TV and on Local Now, Channel 525. Went to another graduation last night and keep hearing the same message. And then we take it some time around the social media water cooler. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, friends. Welcome to The Common Good here on AIM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm, normally joined by my co-host Aubrey Sampson, but... Aubrey is enjoying some time away. If you were with us earlier this week, she shared that she was heading to a wedding down in Florida, doing one of her favorite things, heading to a Walt Disney World with one of her uh, one of her sons. So Aubrey, like uh, that is, if you know her at all, her favorite thing to do. So we're excited for Aubrey. She'll be back later in the week. Uh, but until then, I am just going to fly solo here. And we're excited to have you with us on this Wednesday, on this hump day. And uh, here's what happened in my life yesterday. I had yet you you know that uh, my daughter graduated high school. Gosh, it feels like a, two or three weeks ago now. But my son, uh, I'm using air quotes here. He graduated ju- uh, eighth grade last night. So they make sure to call it a promotion. There is uh, no cap and gowns, but it's a big ceremony. They give them a diploma. They read out their names. All the parents are there. A ton of fun. Uh, yet another sign that the school year is ending. In fact, my my youngest daughter, she's in seventh grade. She had to go today for a half day, and then we are done. The Fromms are on summer vacation, and uh, it couldn't come soon enough. So we're excited for this. Uh, of course, it'll be a very busy one. And when the next school year rolls around, uh, it is going to be college for us. So uh, you can be praying for us. But as I've been heading to my daughter's high school graduation, to my son's eighth grade promotion, uh, we keep getting the same speech. You know how it is. You go to these ceremonies and uh, the principal gets up and gives a speech. The superintendent gives a speech. Maybe the class president gives a speech. If you're a college graduation, you know, you get the uh, commencement speaker, kind of that outside speaker. But you get people who get up and and their their job is to inspire, encourage, challenge the graduates. And I always think to myself, what would you say to a, a high school graduate, to an eighth grade graduate? What would you say to them as as they are launching into a new thing? And uh, what's interesting is uh, having done a high school graduation now and a junior high promotion in the last two weeks, the message has been the same. Uh, the principals, the superintendent, uh, the class presidents, they've all had one common theme. And it struck me as both appropriate, interesting, but maybe a little bit odd. It made me wonder when are things going to change. Every single speaker got up and talked about COVID and the changes that it caused, the disruption. And, and on some level, for good reason, right? Because my high schooler... She was a sophomore and a junior during COVID. So when she's graduating, the principal gets up and goes, you guys went through unprecedented times. You persevered. You got to have a normal senior year. And this is setting you up. 
to have a strong, you know, be able to face any challenges in, in life. The eighth grade, my, my son, uh, where I go, where, where I live, middle school is just seventh and eighth grade. So he didn't have his, his first year of middle school, of junior high, was completely wiped out by COVID. His last year of elementary school and then his first year, they would be in person, but it was all masked. Sometimes it was remote. The beginning of his eighth grade year was masked. And then, you know, early in the fall, they started going unmasked and, and things got back to normal. But he really only had one, quote unquote, normal uh, time at, in junior high. And so last night, the principal got up, the superintendent got up, the student council vice president got up, and they all gave short speeches, and every one of them uh, applauded these students for their perseverance and applauded these students for not, um, you know, by being, being able to, to complete this task having gone through COVID, having gone through, you, you know, the list of things, remote learning, wearing masks, not being in school, whatever else it might be. And it got me thinking about two things. The first is this. What actually have we learned from COVID? Uh, that's what these teachers or these principals were trying to tell these students. They were trying to remind them, what have we learned from COVID? And it got me thinking, in the church, in schools, in in life in general, what have we actually learned from COVID? I do think it's taught us perseverance. That's what they were st- speaking to these students about. It has taught us that we can be malleable. Uh, but it also taught us, I think, that there is um, – a lot of skepticism in our culture right now. And I, I think that it, I, I don't think it made us a skeptical society. I think it, um, it revealed us to be skeptical. It revealed us to be disunified. It revealed us to be kind of angry below the surface. I don't think I ever would have thought that the debates that came up over masks or vaccines or uh, mitigation, and I, I think they're worth being debated, but with the anger that came out of it uh, was something. I think it taught us that uh, in our churches, that our community, quote-unquote, I lead a church that has community in its name, uh, I think that it taught us that that our sense of community was a lot weaker than what we probably thought before COVID. Oh, of course everyone's going to come back. Of course everyone's going to stick through this. Of course everyone's going to stay connected. It just didn't happen. Uh, not just in my church, but basically any pastor that I know has said, yeah, no, it's it really has surprised me. And, and so I hope that we are different people going forward, that we continue to be men and women who persevere, that these students have learned perseverance, that they have learned that they could be uh, malleable, that they have learned what it looks like to keep going in the midst of hardship. So I, I am glad on one level that that these principals and these superintendents focused on that. On the other hand, I did. My wife and I were joking. I said before the ceremony last night, I said, I feel like we should make a bet the over under of how many times somebody references COVID and whatever I had chosen, I would have been I would have been too low because that's all they talked about last night. And I did think of this about I, I, when do we stop talking about it? Like, when does it just become life is back? Not back to normal, but this is normal because we have changed since COVID. But when are we just going that this is life? And I know it's still we're still in the midst of it, and some of you are still wearing masks everywhere, and some of you have gone through great tragedies in this. But I'm talking culturally at large. At what point do we stop having to say pre-COVID, post-COVID? Uh, at what point do we have to say, oh, since COVID? And I hope that that's coming soon because it, it did sadden me a little bit 
that both for my daughter's high school graduation and my son's eighth grade promotion, it was basically their their school experience in the eyes of these administrators and other speakers was just uh, defined by what they went through with COVID. And it really was so much more than that, right? Their, their school life was so much more than that. So I have no doubt if I had been asked to speak, I would have gotten up and talked about COVID. I'm not saying these people shouldn't have. But at what point do we as churches stop using that as a crutch? Well, COVID, COVID, COVID. No, this is our new reality. Let's let's move forward in schools. COVID, COVID, COVID. No, this is, all right, our kids are different, but let's start talking about the future and, and what it's going to look like. So that's what struck me. It has been a week full of celebrating, or, or three weeks full of celebrating here. Gra- high school graduation, eighth grade graduation, the end of the school year, and hopefully now it's just a normal summer, and I hope out there you are looking forward to a great summer. We're going to do great shows during the summer as you are traveling, but we hope that it is wonderful. Gosh, it's been now like two weeks, I think, since that tragic uh, mass shooting in Uvalde, Texas, and the more you hear the stories, just the harder it is. Like... You know, whether it be what actually happened or the response to it or the debates going on. And now you're starting to hear or you have been hearing the stories of the poor students who lost their lives, the teachers. Uh, and you're watching on re- in real time on television at some of these hearings that we're going to talk about or other places, just the pain of family members uh, as they wrestle with the fact and come to the realization that they've lost their loved one, whether it be one of these precious students in Uvalde, or whether it be one of those people in Buffalo uh, in that grocery store or however, you know, Philadelphia this past week or other places. And and it's just hard. But as we've been saying all week, you can't look away. Like part of our responsibility is to uh, feel that pain, Uh, even though it's not our families, thankfully, but to feel that pain. And, And with that in mind, um, there are hearings going on this week, uh, congressional hearings in front of the House committee uh, with shooting victims and families to testify to gun hearing before Congress. Because there is some movement in Congress around gun legislation and survivors and family members of victims from the shootings in Uvalde and in Buffalo are testifying before lawmakers uh, at a hearing focused on the epidemic of gun violence, the House Committee on Oversight and reform is going to hear from two panels of witnesses. So the first one is a mom who lost a son in Buffalo. Uh, Another one is Uvalde's only pediatrician who helped treat victims, some mothers of uh, and fathers of kids who were killed in Uvalde, and that poor girl, Mia Cirillo, fourth grader at Robb Elementary School, who survived the shooting by smearing her dead classmates' blood on herself and pretended to be dead. So they're going to get to speak to Congress and say, hey, here's our um, here's our experience. And with that in mind, and this has been just flying around Twitter, uh, actor Matthew McConaughey spoke yesterday in the White House briefing room. You might be like, what is he speaking for? Well, interestingly, Matthew McConaughey is actually from Uvalde. And so, you know, he has a vested interest, if you will. He's been there. He's been trying to help. Uh, and he's a self-proclaimed gun owner. And he did say he wanted to talk about what he has seen there and what he um, what he thinks needs to be done. So let's listen to a little bit of what Matthew McConaughey had to say yesterday. We also met a cosmetologist. She was well versed in mortuary makeup. 
That's the task of making the victims appear as peaceful and natural as possible for their open casket viewings. These bodies were very different. They needed much more than makeup to be presentable. They needed extensive restoration. Why? Due to the exceptionally large exit wounds of an AR-15 rifle. Most of the bodies so mutilated that only DNA test or green converse could identify. Many children were left not only dead, but hollow. So yes, counselors are going to be needed in Uvalde for a long time. Counselors are needed in all these places where these mass shooters have been for a long time. I, I was told by many that it takes a good year before people even understand what to do next. All right, a lot of emotion. And I, and I, I just can't imagine if this happened in my hometown what I would be feeling. That's that's what he's going through. But right now, uh, we are, as a nation, wrestling with what do you do now? Like, there I, there seems to be, and I, I, I preface this with saying it's felt the same after Sandy Hook, but it, it seems to be some movement right now to do something, right? right? What are we going to do? And, and uh, apparently there's some bipartisan increasing support over some things to be happened, uh, around gun violence, but what, what's bothering me about this conversation, whether it be I'm, when I'm talking to people, uh, friends of mine, or what I see online, or um, uh, you know, in church, talking to people, is everybody uh, I think wants to see these things stop, but people are don't seem to be willing to talk about the issue in totality. Here's what I mean by that: Do I think mass shootings will go away if we? Uh, have, you know, heavy gun reform. Let's take guns, for instance. No, I think there's going to still happen. They're going to still happen. But is gun reform part of the solution? Absolutely. And so let's start having adult conversations instead of people on the polls on either side throwing things at each other on Twitter or in the media. Let's have adult conversations that say, what is logical, some gun reform, whether it be raising the age, whether it be, um, you know, red flag laws, uh, whatever it might be. What can we do around guns that might save lives, not eliminate gun violence because it's always going to be there. But what can help? How about mental health? Like for some reason, people have either it's like you have to choose a side that it's either mental health issues or it's guns. How about it's mental health issues and guns? Uh and family issues, and media. Well, it could be all of these things. And I think as adults, for the sake of our children and for the sake of our society, we need to be willing to look at these things across the board and say, okay, how do we step in and 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 get at the mental health epidemic that's going on in our teenagers? Let me tell you, friends out there, you might not know this, but it is an uh, mental health issues to an epidemic proportion in our teenagers. And for something I talked about earlier, part of that's COVID, but part of that's just everything. It's social media. It's the media in general. It's just pressures of school. It's pandemic. It's all of this. But kids are committing suicide. Kids are having mental health issues. I see it in my uh, in our school where our kids are, and you read about it everywhere. Like We have a mental health crisis that the church must be willing to talk about, 
that pastors need to be willing to talk about, that schools need to get into. Like, it's a big deal. But when you mix mental health with guns, that's also a problem. So let's talk about guns. Here's my call. Uh, I, I wish I had trust in our politicians to say they're going to act like adults here. But what we can do is we can uh, we can push our elected officials to have those conversations. You can write your congressman. You can email whatever you are able to do. We've got to get our handle around this. May we pray that there's never another shooting, even though all of us expect that there will be. May we pray that there'll never be another shooting where little kids are cowering and are getting killed and are getting just everything that McConaughey talked about there. It is unconscionable for a society like ours to have these happening over and over and over again. And we as the adults need to be willing to have the adult conversations and start to come to some solutions. Something that Aubrey and I do each week uh, is something that we've begun calling the social media water cooler. So what's the social media water cooler? We're trying to uh, do, you know, back in a uh, generation ago at work, there was the water cooler where people would hang out and they'd stand around the water cooler and they'd talk about the issues of the day or they would talk about the game that was on last night. There was a place to build community. And really what the water cooler is now is social media. We go to social media to make, you know to talk to our friends, to talk about what the, the issues of the day, to give our thoughts about things. Uh, and that's why we call this the social media water cooler. So each week we give you a question, and sometimes they're deep, sometimes they're funny, sometimes they just are things that we're thinking about. And uh, such was the case this week. Here was the question we posed for you, and a lot of you responded to this. Uh, If you could only have three movies to watch for the rest of your life, and Aubrey said parenthetically this cannot include entire franchises, so you get three movies for the rest of your life, what would those three movies be? So think about it this way. It's the old desert island question. You can have three movies on a desert island for the rest of your life. What are they? So uh, the, the hard part about this question is it doesn't mean necessarily that they're your three favorite movies, but it does at least mean that they're the three most rewatchable movies for you. Because uh, sometimes when one of your favorite movies, you might be like, well, that's so dark. I wouldn't want to watch that over and over again. Or that had a spoiler at the end or like a, like a big twist. And now I know the twist. So maybe I don't want to watch that again. Uh, but man, you guys were all over the place. And I realize when I read these, there's lots of movies I've never seen. So uh, somebody named David Leonard, Leonard wrote, Lord of the Rings Trilogy Extended Editions, they are masterpieces. So David just wants all of the Lord of the Rings. Just going to go through them and go through them again. David does not like me because I told people that I've never seen Lord of the Rings. Uh, Kathy uh, Jaffer uh, said this, Sound of Music, Ferris Bueller, and Forrest Gump. That That is a wide swath right there. That is... Uh, yeah, that is something. So Sound of Music, Ferris Bueller, Forrest Gump. Uh, <laughs> Matt Michelotis said George of the Jungle. And then two other movies, I guess. Why George of the Jungle? Because he said you're on a desert island. You know, maybe that will help me. So we're going utilitarian on this one. Uh, Aubrey's dad, Larry Travis, says Out of Africa, Dances with Wolves, Lonesome Dove. Uh, and Shawshank as a pinch hitter. Now, Shawshank, I think, would make my list. We're going to do our list later in the week. Uh, but those are good. All right, here's one that I love. 
uh, Emma Rentis said Sandlot, Diary of a Mad Black Woman, and Little Miss Sunshine. Uh, I love Sandlot. That, my son went through a Sandlot stage, and I just watched it all the time. Catherine McNeil, who often helps host on this show, said The Princess Bride. Now, that one would be on my wife's one. There is not a doubt in my mind. The Princess Bride, That Thing You Do, and Knives Out. Uh, she said, or at least those are the only movies I've ever wanted to watch multiple times. Uh, Danita Janae said, while you were sleeping, Elf. And then she went, uh, Paul Blart Mark Mall Cop. That might be the most surprising one. I'm, I'm looking at Keith, our, our executive producer, and, and he gave like a, a look to that one too. I, I didn't expect Paul Bar- Blart uh, Mall Cop. Uh, a couple more. Uh, Donna Henrique said, Dirty Dancing, Elf, and Ferris Bueller. These may change at any given point, uh, but I can't turn those off once I start. I see uh, It's a Wonderful Life and Nodding Hill. There is something about a rom-com that I just, I I, I can re-watch a rom-com much more than I can re-watch like, uh, you know, something where where there's just a lot of drama in it. Someone else went, uh, this person must be a dancer. This person went Grease, Dirty Dancing, and Overboard. Uh, we've got You've Got Mail, Pitch Perfect, Princess Bride a couple a couple more times. In fact, the number one one that was on our list here uh, was The Princess Bride. Interesting. Keith Conrad, our executive producer, Raiders of the Lost Ark, The Hunt for Red October, and Interstellar. Okay. Tells us something about him. A couple more. Somebody went Lawrence of Arabia. Another one for Father of the Bride and another one for Notting Hill. Notting Hill did really well on our survey here. I'm going to give you a little uh, insight into how I'm going to go with this one later in the week because I'm not sure any of the movies that I would have chosen are on this uh, made our list. And that is uh, disturbing for me, to say the least. I would go with things like um, Hoosiers, Rocky Four. Or things like that. So uh, nobody went there. We went more rom com and others. So uh, thanks for spending some time with us around the social media water cooler. Uh, it is super interesting. Before we go, I want to highlight one more. Uh, I want to highlight one more story I saw. This was out of Colorado. It was a survey that said this. I, I wanted to bring this up just because I've been talking a lot about graduation. This says, one-third of Americans admit they had no life plan after graduating school. It says these days school going to school isn't uh, doesn't mean getting a job. One-third of Americans revealed they had no plan after graduating from school, college, or high school. Uh, a survey with 2,000 adults and how they felt about entering responsible life of adulthood. 34% of respondents didn't have a plan, while 41% said they didn't have a job lined up. Meanwhile, 17% who, uh, who attended college said they had no plans after senior year. Uh, the survey also replied, uh, showed that 62% of respondents would want to attend college at some point. Uh, so as I've been saying over and over again, I have a daughter that just graduated high school and she is a planner. She wants to know what her major is and what that career path that's going to lead her into. And I said to her, sweetie, uh, you're going to change your major at some point. Everyone changes their major. Don't go into college 
trying to figure out the rest of your life, go into college and enjoy college and the rest will work itself out. I actually like this survey. I think some people read this survey and it, it worries them like, whoa, what's going on with kids? They don't know what they're doing. What is going to happen to the next generation? I'm like, good. I actually think this is good. We don't need to have everything planned out. You could come out of college, go one way, and then decide, you know what, I want to go another way. You could leave high school and say, I want to take a gap year and, and figure some things out, or I'm going to go to college to study this, but then change your major. I think sometimes we think that we have to have things so planned out, so figured out. Uh, and we do this in churches, right? Where am I going? Where's our church going to be in 10 years? I don't know. I don't even know where we're going to be in one year. Or we send our kids off to college, and the question is exactly what are you going to be when you grow up? I don't know. Give them time to figure that out. I actually like this survey. I think a lot of people read this survey, and they get worried about like the uncertainty, and kids don't know what they're going to do. I actually find this to be a good thing. I don't know. Maybe you're, Maybe I'm wrong about that. I wonder what you think. One-third of Americans admit they had no life plan after graduating school, both college and this also goes to high school. That's interesting. I wonder what you think about that. If you've been around this show for a while, you know one of the people we love having on the show is David French. David French is senior editor at The Dispatch. He writes at The Atlantic. Uh, But he's also the co-host of a new podcast uh, called The Good Faith Podcast. The Good Faith Podcast, along with Curtis Chang. Uh, Curtis Chang uh, and David French do The Good Faith Podcast. I'm sure you can find that wherever it is you get your podcast. And the other day... Uh, they were going to tackle uh, a hot button issue, the the hot button issue right now, and that being gun control. And they acknowledge early on in the podcast that we're probably going to be different. We're probably going to land in some different spots here. But what I thought was super helpful uh, was uh, that they uh, they tackled it this way. They began by saying. Uh, how do you even begin to other understand another person's point of view, especially on hot topics like gun control? Because we're really good on social media and podcasts, on the radio and other places of, of just going at people, right? I don't listen. I instead, I, I want to just tell you what I think is right. And you tell me what you think is right. And we disagree. Like that's what cable news is, right? You've got the boxes on the TV and it's people yelling at each other. And and it's not like we're talking so that we can convince each other. Instead, we're just yelling to get our point out there. And that's what social media is, just yelling and commenting and this and that so that you understand what I'm saying. But but how do we actually have conversations around the dinner table? How do we have conversations inside the church, on a podcast, wherever else it might be? around topics that are hot button, quote unquote, topics that we disagree with. And I want you to listen to what Curtis Chang particularly had to say here uh, on their podcast before they started talking about their ideas about gun control. Take a listen. Conversation, both in politics and in personal relationships, goes off the rails very quickly if you immediately adopt a us versus them framework with a them right. is out to get us right and um and w- at least one way to moderate the us versus them instinct that is so strong is to actually understand the human story uh that of the of the other person that that holds a different view and i think it's probably helpful even 
for our conversation, even if it's, you know, we may not end up completely on polar opposites. We're, I imagine we're going to be, you know, on the, on the what, on different, uh, potentially different sides of this, that it's probably helpful to start with a, like, what's our story? What's our story with guns in particular? Because, you know, the research shows that where you stand, where you end up on gun control is significantly determined by your own life history, including from a very early age or childhood. It's like, what did you grow up with guns? Did you grow up shooting guns? Did your, did your parents have guns? Ends up being a pretty strong predictor of where you are on guns. Mm -hmm. So I almost feel like a, a helpful uh, first step, if you're going to talk about guns, is just to declare, hey, what's my own personal narrative relative to guns? What's my relationship to guns like? So, again, that's from the Good Faith podcast with Curtis Chang and David French. And here's what I appreciate about what they said there. Um, because we often don't take the time to understand what or where the other person's view is even coming from. Let me give you an example. I've told you when it comes to guns. OK, I've told you when it comes to guns, I don't have a history with guns at all. Uh, I have shot the number of times I've even shot a gun in my life. I could probably count on one hand. I did not grow up in gun culture. I did not grow up around guns. And so I, quite frankly, don't understand people's connection to guns. I'm not saying it's wrong. I just don't. It's not part of my history. It's not where I came from. But I was having a conversation with a brother-in-law of mine the other day who's grew up in the Midwest, and he grew up more around gun culture. He had lots of guns in the house, lots of shooting, and he still does to this day. And so when him and I were talking the other day about, I literally asked him, what do you think the solution is about guns? And what the way he talks about it is very um, different than the way I do because of the way we were raised. And that's what these guys are talking about here. Like, what is our background? What is our point of view? Where's our position that we are coming from? And I think this is a super helpful way because uh, we talk about this often. When it comes to politics, when it comes to hot button issues, we often treat it not as you and I come from a different spot or you and I disagree. We often come at it as you and I are enemies and you are somebody who needs to be defeated. And anytime I see you as somebody who needs to be defeated as an enemy, as a bad guy, as whatever else we will say, then that's going to cause me to take a certain posture, a posture that says, I'm going to yell you down. I'm not going to give you a listen. I'm not going to. But if we said, you know what, let me help. Help me understand where David French here is coming from or where Curtis Chang or where my brother-in-law or whatever else. Where are we coming from? And can we have an actual conversation about something. See, I think the church could lead the way with this. And this is a huge controversy right now within the church. Uh, should we be civil? Should we be winsome is the word out there uh, with people who disagree with us, with people who don't believe our faith? Or is now the time to fight? And I don't think winsomeness or civility means that we roll over. But instead... How do we have civility? How do we have winsomeness while holding on to um, our convictions? Is that possible? There are many people, especially of the conservative ilk right now in the Christian world, who are saying that's not possible. That's not, 
it's not that it's not possible, but it shouldn't be our hope. It shouldn't be our posture. But instead, as we are getting pushed back against, we need to push back even harder. I'm preaching this week out of 1 Peter, and I believe the passage that we are getting to is always be prepared to give an answer for the hope that you have, but do so with gentleness and respect. What does gentleness and respect look like right now when, quite frankly, you're talking about an issue like abortion? Or you're talking about an issue like religious liberty or guns or politics in general or whatever else it might be. Are we called to be winsome, to be civil, to have that point of view? Or is it time to fight fire with fire? I would suggest that the way of Jesus is still the way for us to take now. We hold on to our convictions, uh, but we... Uh, we form community with those who don't agree with us. We listen to them. We uh, care about them. Uh, we, The way Curtis Cheng put it here is it's hard to see other people's point of view without first asking where, what's their, where are they coming from, what has shaped them. But I wonder if you agree. Because as a pastor, that's the posture I want to see the church take. Hey, let me uh, show you civility. Let me show you, even if you're not showing me civility, let me show you grace. Even if you're not showing me grace, I'm going to hold to my convictions strongly. I'm going to hold to my convictions about sexuality. I'm going to hold to my convictions about abortion. I'm going to hold to my convictions about our faith in general, but I'm not going to use the same tactics that our culture might be using against us. That's where the debate lies right now. Many people believe we should be using the same tactics. And I would suggest that we do not. Well, how about you? What should the posture of the Christ follower be on these hot button topics, on issues that are deep, deeply held convictions for us? Uh, I would suggest that we are still called to give answers with gentleness and respect, that we are still called to have community with those that we disagree with, that we are never called to view other people as our enemies but that we are to have a winsomeness that will hopefully also draw people to the gospel. So grateful for Curtis Chang and David French. That, again, is the Good Faith Podcast. Uh, Go ahead and check it out. All right. One of the names who is constantly in the news these days is Elon Musk. Elon Musk, uh, you know, it seems to be hung up a little bit right now, but uh, he of buying Twitter, of Tesla, of just, you know, he's rich beyond comprehension, sending people into space. Elon Musk, we all know of Elon Musk, a fascinating figure. Regardless of what you think about him, he's fascinating. And uh, Elon Musk, back in January, but this was flying around the Internet a little bit, uh, there's a YouTube clip of him talking about Jesus. He was asked on a show about Jesus, and uh, it now has... Almost 2.7 million views right now uh, on uh, on on YouTube. And so I want you to hear just a brief clip. When asked about his thoughts on Jesus, I want you to hear what Elon Musk had to say. Let's listen to Elon Musk. I agree with the principles that Jesus advocated, um, and th- that the you know there are some some. There's great wisdom in what in, in the teaching, teachings of, of Jesus, uh, and I agree with those teachings. Um, and things like turn the other cheek are are very important because 
as opposed to an eye for an eye. Um, an eye for an eye leads everyone blind. So forgiveness, you know, is important and um, treating people as you would wish to be treated. Love thy neighbor as thyself. Very important. So it's like a 60-70% as, yes. <laughs> as Einstein would say, I believe in the God of Spinoza. Um, so, um, but hey, if, um, you know, if, if, if Jesus is, is uh, saving people, I mean, I, I, I wouldn't stand in his way, you know, like, I'll be sure, I'll be saved, why not? Sweet, we did it. Yeah. I think he just said yes. We got him. <laughs> All right. We got him. <laughs> so, Elon Musk, it's fascinating. I want to talk about evangelism here. And uh, Aubrey and I talked about apologetics uh, during this week. I, I want to have a conversation because I think Elon Musk gives an uh, uh, an open door here. He's a window, if you will, into how a lot of people think about Jesus. Because I do think there are people who are antagonistic. I don't want anything to do with your Jesus. I want nothing to do with him. But I think that's a small percentage of people. I think most people who are not Christ followers would say what Elon Musk said here. I agree with his principles that he taught. Uh, that there is that there is great wisdom in the teachings of Jesus. I think most people say that I agree with those teachings. Elon Musk talks about Jesus saying, turn the other cheek, and that this is very important and a great way to live, that that an eye for an eye is not a great way, way to live. Elon Musk talks about Jesus talking about forgiveness, and that Elon Musk says, I believe forgiveness is important, that treating people as you want to be treated is important, that loving your neighbor as yourself is important, but then these guys who are interviewing them say, no, no, but what do you believe about Jesus? Like, who do you think Jesus, Jesus didn't just claim to be a great teacher, and Elon Musk kind of in a funny way here says, if Jesus is saving people, then that's great, I won't stand in his way as if he could, I hope it's true, I'll be saved, why not? And then these these guys here, they're like, great, we got him to say it. But really, what Elon Musk is saying here is that I believe that Jesus holds great value, that Jesus is a wonderful teacher, that some of the things he said we should listen to him about forgiveness, about loving your neighbor, about turning the other cheek. I think that's what most people believe about Jesus. He is somebody worth listening to, but that he's not the savior of the world. And that that's not even why he came or what I even think of him. I do appreciate Elon Musk saying I always wanted to get saved, so it sounds good. But you can tell he hasn't given much thought to that. Friends, as we talk about evangelism, I think this gets to the crux of it. And eventually, as we talk to people about Jesus, this gets to the question. Jesus looks at Peter. Do you remember that story? Jesus says to Peter, hey, who does everybody say that I am? And Peter says, they say, you're Elijah. They say, you're the prophet. They say, you're this. They say, you're that. And then Jesus asks Peter a question. 
And it is the question that every human being needs to answer. So Jesus has just asked Peter, who does everybody say that I am? Uh, And then uh, Jesus said, but Peter, who do you say that I am? And that's where Peter, he, he, Peter sometimes fails miserably and sometimes succeeds spectacularly. This is a success. He says, uh, you are the Lord, right? You're the Messiah. But that is the question that every person needs to answer. If you're listening right now, it's the question you must answer. Not who does everybody else say that Jesus is. Who do you say that Jesus is? Is Jesus just some guy? Is he a good teacher? A great rabbi? Or is he the Lord? Is he Messiah? Is he the Savior of the world? This is the old C.S. Lewis uh, question as well. Uh, C.S. Lewis was asked, you know, or C.S. Lewis in talking about Jesus said, uh, you cannot claim Jesus just to be a great teacher. If Jesus is just a teacher, Jesus has to be one of three things. Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or he's the Lord. He's a liar because he claimed to be Lord. So if he claimed that but knew that he wasn't, then he's a liar. If he claimed that and thought he was the Lord but wasn't, then he's crazy. He's a lunatic. But if he claimed that and he's right and he's being truthful, then he's the Lord and he is worthy of all worship. See, actually, what Elon Musk says about Jesus is not an option. Jesus cannot just be a good teacher. He is a good teacher, but that cannot be where it stops. We should model our lives after the things that he said, but that's not where it stops. Jesus is worthy of all devotion. Jesus is worthy of all worship. Jesus is worthy of putting our hope in because he is the Lord of the universe. He is the Savior of the world. He is the long-awaited Messiah. And I believe that most people are not antagonistic to Jesus. Most people just believe what Elon Musk here believes. Hey, he's got great things to teach. He's got great things to say. As your friends and your family, or maybe you're wrestling with that, come to that conclusion. I would suggest winsomely and nicely asking them, who do you say that Jesus is? And here's who Jesus says that he is. That is the crossroads. That is the question. And praise God that we can proclaim that Jesus was, is, and always will be the Lord of the universe, the Savior of the world, our hope both for now and for eternity. That is where we put our hope, friends. The thing that Aubrey and I tend to do at the end of every show is that we try to give you some encouragement. We try to give you some challenge, something to put a smile on your face or encouragement as you go about your day. And uh, you've heard me talk about this often, but Aubrey and I are both pastors. Uh, Aubrey uh, and her husband, Kevin, they lead uh, at Renewal Church in West Chicago. I uh, planted and lead and the lead pastor at Four Corners Community Church in Darien, just south of Downers Grove. And that's our, that's our day job, we like to say. We are primarily pastors. And one of the greatest joys of being a pastor is to be able to, uh, on a weekly basis, be able to preach and be able to open up God's Word and, and help our congregations and at the same time ourselves celebrate the good news of the gospel, celebrate uh, 
the God's very word that we believe that we can anchor our lives on. And so what I'm doing in my church right now is I am walking through the book of First Peter. It's wonderful, and it's fun to walk through a book because you can't avoid the hard stuff, but you can also celebrate the good stuff. So this past week I got to preach First uh, Peter chapter 3. Uh, 1 through 12. If you know First Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, it has some really strange things to say about women and marriage. And we got to talk about that in our church this past week. And uh, But one of the things I've been saying over and over again as we're walking through First Peter, and this is where I want to close our show out today, is that uh, especially in the first half of the book, some of the most important verses under which these other things lay— the context, kind of the umbrella under which uh, they fall, are First Peter chapter two verses eleven through twelve. So you got to remember the background of the book of First Peter. Uh, the Apostle Peter is writing to the churches in Asia Minor who are who are exiles. They're on the run, right? Like they're facing persecution. They don't really have a home. And Peter is writing to these churches to encourage them uh, and to cheer them on but to also kind of remind them of their calling and their mission, and here's how you are to live. And so uh, he gets to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 through 12, and it says this, Dear friends, I urge you, as foreigners and exiles, right? We just said they're, on the, they're, not at home, they're not in their homeland. They've been pushed to a new spot. They are foreigners and exiles in a land. I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Uh, I think there's some people out there who need to hear today that it's our sinful desires that war against your soul. And when something's warring against our soul, not only do we abstain, but we remove it. We push it away. Some of you out there might be kind of coddling sin and allowing sin to remain in your life and it's doing damage to your soul. Here today, abstain from your sin from sinful desires which war against your soul. Throw off the sin that so easily entangles and run the race, the book of Hebrews tells us. But then verse 12, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Live such good lives where among the pagans around the people who don't believe this isn't he's not talking when you're at church together but he's saying among the pagans this uh, this assumes that we are living lives that are among the pagans quote unquote as to use his terminology among people who don't believe among people who are not in the church that we're not um bubbled off but that as we are living among the pagans as we are living in the world, that our character, our integrity, our very lives would be such good lives that though we are accused of doing wrong, Peter says to them that though they accuse you of doing wrong, these people were being accused of unbelievable things, that because of things like the Lord's Supper, they were being accused of of cannibalism. They were being accused of trying to break up marriages. Like the early church, if you go back and read about the, the, the context of First Peter, they were being accused of horrendous things. And we're not accused of those things, but we're certainly pushed back against in our culture. We're certainly accused. We're certainly uh, misrepresented. There is certainly increasing hostility. While I don't believe the Church of America is being persecuted, I think that cheapens the word. There is certainly hostility and increasing hostility 
that is pushing back against us. And so the question becomes, what do we do as we are being quote unquote accused or as there is increased hostility? He says, live such good lives that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. May our character and our integrity point people to Jesus. May the goodness with which we live, may the way that we reflect Jesus as his representatives, as his ambassadors, may the day-to-day lives that we live, even more than the words that we say, cause people who don't believe anything that we believe to go, but they're different. Their good deeds are impressive. I want a little bit of what they've had, and it caused them to glorify God on the day he visits us. So as we close up the show today, let me just ask you that question. I already asked you, are you warring against sin? Are you abstaining from sin? But what is the the character, the integrity of your life? What does it say about Jesus to people who don't believe in Jesus? Are you living such good lives, such Christ? Not perfect. None of us are perfect. We're going to fail. But my worry for the church, the big C Church of America, is that the way that we are online, the way that we are antagonizing people, the way that we fight back, that we are not living, and also the abuses we see in the church, the greed that we see or whatever else, we're not living lives that show people Jesus, that say that's different. If you hear anything else from this, hear this. We are called to live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you, though they push back, though they disagree, though they, to use Peter's language, persecute you, though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Friends, your greatest evangelistic tool, your number one apologetic Your greatest way to do evangelism, your greatest evangelistic tool is the life that you live. But also the greatest way to torpedo the gospel, your gospel representation is also the way that you live. May we live with such character and integrity and Christ-likeness that it causes people to say, I'm not sure that I believe in Jesus, but I want to know more about that person's life. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. That, my friends, is our calling. I'm really glad that you joined us today. Uh, I'll be back again tomorrow from 4 until 6, and then Aubrey will join us again on Friday. I hope that you have a great day. My name is Brian Fromm, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. 